The Fred Minnick Show is brought to you by Manscaped. Enter Smooth Fred to save 20% at checkout. By The Beeline, Michter's, and 291 Colorado Whiskey. Hey everybody, welcome back to The Fred Minnick Show. I am excited about today. And last week I introduced you to a new... Uh, a new a new sponsor and uh we had some fun with the sponsor on uh, on my youtube the live stream because the the checkout code is is smooth fred so my my youtube members were were uh were having a lot of fun with that and they even want their own smooth fred emoji which i don't know what that would look like but manscaped is is the is the men's grooming the official men's grooming partner for the Fred Minnick show. I'm excited to have them because this is like I mean it's true like we all know that we all know that guy that has like nose hair that you know comes down to like his knees and he can play the nose hair like a piccolo. Listen, I know it's gross, but you know we do have to talk about that. Some folks nose hair just gets completely out of line. And Manscaped's got the perfect product for it. It's called uh, the Weed Whacker. It's a nose and ear and hair trimmer. Um, you know, just take a look in the mirror, and I guarantee you'll see hairs just sticking out of out of your ear and your nose. Man, nobody wants to see that. Nobody wants to see that. So if you if that's you, or if you know someone who's a nose hair Johnny, you know, go check out um, Manscaped.com. That's Manscaped.com, and go check out the Weed Whacker. Enter uh, Smooth Fred at checkout to save 20%. Again, that's Smooth Fred to save 20%. Listen, nose hair Johnny will thank you. I assure you that. So this week's show is going to take a little different spin on the programming. Uh, normally, I've got an interview here, or I've got a, uh, a musician interview, rather. And I do have interviews coming up. But uh, what I'm doing is, is I'm actually talking to people uh, who were on my list for best bourbons of the century so far. And if you follow me on YouTube, you know that I've been doing a series. You know, last month was Bourbon Heritage Month, and I did a, I did a bourbon every day that I thought was uh, one of the greatest bourbons of the 21st century so far. And um, in, this, in this episode, I have interviews with the top five and that is that is basically Eddie Russell. You know they came in fifth place with um, with Wild Turkey's uh, Russell's Reserve 1998. I've got Larry Cass, the former. They came in fourth place from Heaven Hill with Parker's Heritage 11 year old. In third place we had Michter's 20 year old and talked to Andrea Wilson. And number two we had Jefferson's 17 uh, year old. And talk to the creator of that and Trey Zeller. And at number one, uh, the, what I thought was the best bourbon of the century so far was the Four Roses Limited Edition Small Batch, the 125th anniversary. Just so good, so beautiful, so rich and layered with all kinds of flavors. I am really excited. I'm really excited about where uh, Four Roses is going because Brent Elliott's a great distiller. They have a lot of a lot of amazing whiskeys laying down in those warehouses and i i just i'm just so excited about all of these but um if you want to see the list in its entirety you can go to youtube and watch the videos i also have the list 
at fredminnick.com. You can go to fredminnick.com and check out the list in its entirety. So while usually I do uh, musician interviews or celebrity interviews, uh, this week we are talking to distillers. And of course, that's kind of where I'm from. I'm from the from the distilling world or I'm from the whiskey world. And this podcast has been my opportunity to kind of break a little bit more out into the mainstream, if you will, and talking to musicians and athletes and so forth. But at the core of who I am, I'll always be a whiskey guy. And so it's, it's, it's a real opportunity for me to bring you these talented, talented distillers and folks from the whiskey community. So please enjoy this week's episode. And uh, again, go to manscaped.com and enter Smooth Fred at checkout to save 20% on the Weed Whacker and the other products from manscaped.com. First up in this uh, interview of five folks is so Eddie Russell, Russell, the master distiller Good, how you doing? of Wild I'm Turkey. living the dream, so I've been putting together uh, my list for best bourbons of the century so far. We've had a good 20-year run here, and you've had a couple in here, and the, coming in at number five is the Russell's uh, 1998 release. What, do you, what did you think about that one? That was an amazing one to me. It, it might be probably my favorite. I mean, each one of them seems to be my favorite as I do them, but you know, this started looking at this stuff years ago and uh, when Campari purchased us, uh, I got with Rob and Cooper and we sat down and we were tasting some older whiskeys to, to see what we can do, you know, get some of the stuff out in the market instead of just blending it into other products. And had these 23 barrels, I sort of had hit back. Um, they just, they reminded me so much when I was younger and first coming into the business, what wild turkey tasted like with that little heavy spice, little fruity notes to it, little cherry cola. So it was just something that just seemed so delicious at that point. And there was not a large run on it, if I recall. There was only like 2,000 bottles, and and they went – that was one of the, one of the first times I remember uh, wild turkey like – the, the whiskey just flying off the shelf. Everybody seemed to really like that release too. Yeah, I mean, I was limited. I only had 28 bar- or 23 barrels to work with. So it wasn't like, you know, some of the others, even the 2002, I had about 70 barrels to pick the 31 or two we used. And this was basically just a group of 23 barrels that I'd been sitting on for quite a while. They like I said, it was stuff that I was sipping on a little bit. It just reminded me of the early 80s up to the early 90s of what Jimmy was doing back in the day. Mm. And this, the the average of the age was 15 years old, if I recall? Yeah, right at it. I actually dumped it about a year before it was bottled because, you know, it's, it's just like I tell a bartender who's doing barrel-aged cocktails you know, taste it every week. And when you think it's perfect, get it out of there because it's going can go the other way pretty quickly. Well, this, when it came out, it was uh, definitely on a lot of short lists for whiskeys of the year. It was, um, you know, it was something that really appealed to folks. But I, I feel like this and the 17 year old that had come out had previously, come out previously uh, were really, uh, were really too, too, too important. Too important. Two important bourbons important for, bourbons for wild, turkey wild turkey and, and showing that you showing guys that were here in the limited edition, edition 
in the limited edition uh, play, kind of like all the other distilleries, you all have always been known as like a really good mainstay, the one an everyday drinker. But these are the bourbons that I feel like put you on the map as like, listen, folks, Wild Turkey also has great limited edition products. And I'm just curious if, if you have seen, you know, since 1998 has come out, if you have seen a shift towards the attitude of some of your uh, limited edition releases. Yeah, and I mean, that was what I was looking for at the very beginning. I think as our consumer changed, you know, it used to just be older gentlemen like me that sipped their bourbon neater on the rocks. And then you started getting all these bourbon clubs and they were looking for these unique whiskeys. And, you know, for me, it was just trying to show something different than our normal consistent 101 or something like that. So finding these barrels, you know, you don't find them all the time. And that's, that's a hard thing for your company to understand. Well, you did this once, do it again. It's like... It don't work quite that way. It's just sometimes barrels just get extraordinary based on where they're placed, what warehouse they're in. How do you how do you find them? Like, I mean, do you have like it? You have it down to a science now, where you know you know where the honey holes are, or do you still find some surprises? You'll find a few surprises, but you know, you start looking in those honey holes. You start looking at the warehouses that you know, produce good whiskey, you start looking in the middle floors, you know, and then you sort of move around from there. Sometimes it could be a little lower, sometimes a little higher, but you definitely start looking. And then it just gets to tasting the whiskey, keeping an eye on it. You know, I learned from Jimmy back in the early 90s when we were doing a few things here, uh, taste the stuff really often. You can't wait a year or two and retaste it. You got to taste it more often uh, to make sure that nothing's going wrong with it or if it's changing. You know, I was talking to Bruce about this yesterday. Sometimes it's six or eight years old. You think it's going to be just extraordinary. And by the time it gets 10, it's just sort of average. So you got to keep on tasting, marking it in your books, making sure you're going back and getting a new sample. And when we get to that time, it, like it's 10 years old and it's not there anymore, do you do you find that it can it kind of goes in waves and it may come the the flavor and the quality may come back around 12 years old or once it's once that flavor is kind of dead is it is it dead for good not always uh, you know sometimes you'll see and I've even seen this in barrels that I stick in a for my private barrel picks when they first come in you'll have a barrel you think is better than this barrel and then three or four or five months down the road it's the other barrel that's got a little better so they can change quite frequently so you just like i said it's all about keep tasting those barrels and seeing what's happening mm -hmm. so all right I, i'm going to put you on the spot a little bit here what's your favorite warehouse well <laughs> for a long time g was one of my favorite it gave the flavors that i loved Right now I have about 30 warehouses. You know, I grew up with about 12 or 14 around here, but it's really grown a lot. And uh, G was the one that just sort of done my flavor profile, that butterscotch, caramel, vanilla, with just the right amount of spice. Uh, so that was one, but man, there's been some that maybe wouldn't have, still not my favorite, but it put out some barrels. It's just been amazing, like K, a few years ago was putting out all these red berry fruity flavors that 
we're just so different from what we're used to. Uh, but overall, I think G still ranks up there one of my better ones. Oh, that's fantastic. So I guess we're all going to be on the hunt for some uh, private barrels from uh, from G now and maybe occasionally K. But, uh, you know, that's the – I think that one of the things that – what's kind of become common with uh, bourbon fans is everybody's always on the hunt for those Russell Reserve store picks. And I almost feel like it was the 1998 release that kind of showed people how beautiful – um, you know, Russell's Reserve and Wild Turkey can be, and I get a lot of the same notes out of out of some store picks. So, you know, I, def- I definitely look for some of those flavors, and I think you hit the nail on the head. I mean, started the program in 2013 and done okay for a few years, but about 2016, everybody's got to talking and telling, you know. Eddie will let you taste eight or 10 barrels and they all taste different. They're from different warehouses and they're really unique. And I think that's what's got people on the, the single barrel picks is I'm not just laying out there one taste profile. You know, I'm trying to find those oddball barrels where people can taste how different they can be. Absolutely. Well, Eddie, thank you so much for taking the time. Uh, please send my best to the family. And uh, I, I tell you what, I, I really I really miss going to distilleries and hanging out with, with you all and, and sipping some whiskey in those warehouses. So once all this craziness ends with COVID, um, I look forward to sipping some whiskey with you again. And Warehouse G, of course. <laughs> that sounds good, Fred. I look forward to it. Stay safe. You too, sir. I'll talk to you later. Thanks. Cheers. Thanks. That was a great interview with Eddie, and we got a little bit of a hint there about his favorite uh, his favorite warehouse. Warehouse G is where I'll be going to pick some barrels, which, by the way, I do have a barrel club coming up. Make sure that you're going to fredminnick.com and subscribing to my newsletter so you can learn more about that. But I'll be picking my own barrels, and you get a chance to buy them. Now, this next interview is with a really good friend of mine, Larry Cass. He's a former... He's a former communications director for um, Heaven Hill. We were both very close with Parker Beam. And, of course, this was uh, named after Parker's Heritage came in fourth, 11-year-old from 2017. It was it was named after Parker Beam, and, you know, and we spent a lot of time talking about that. So enjoy this interview with the great Larry Cass. All is well. All is well here at home uh, with me and my dogs. So, yep, it's... Uh, Great to be great to be with you, and uh, congratulations on all your honors and kudos, and and to think that I knew you when your your ascot was only that big. It's just <laughs> it's an honor. So, <laughs> well, I, I appreciate that. You've always been, uh, you know, very kind and very uh, very helpful to me in my career. And I'll say that you know, um, whenever I wanted information, like you would give me to the the highest level of detail I could possibly want, and. You know, for, for what I was trying to do 10, 15 years ago, that that was not very common. You know, not a lot uh, of transparency in the business. Yeah, in other words, I talk too much. That's what you're saying, right? No, you were perfect. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. Just, you, no, you, that's, you wouldn't be the first person. So, no, no, I'm, I'm you know, I, uh, I, 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 I truly loved, you know, the, the, the cliche of a business of relationships is truly that a cliche, but. 
I, I loved working with uh, and still staying in contact with you and all the writers that I ran across. You know, you guys were an incredibly intelligent and 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 fun bunch, a bunch of people to be around. So I, I appreciate that greatly. So <laughs> I'm a frustrated well, writer myself. So. It, you know, and I think the thing is, too, is like writers, we have a tendency to really not like PR people because they they treat us like. <laughs> we are just a clip uh, or we're, you know, we're, we're just a hit, you know, or, you know, they don't really necessarily treat us like humans. Um, and, uh, you know, that was always different with you. And and if you thought some of my stuff was shit, you told me. And that's what I appreciated even more. So. Oh, surely, surely I never did that. But uh. <laughs> No, uh, not, yeah. not not to that extent. No, but you no, were. no, no, and 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 thank you very much. That's very kind. And, and uh, of course, back when I started, there was but a but a small handful of people that wrote about whiskey. So it, it's uh, it's great to see, you know, lots of other great people. Uh, you know, you know, the category getting bigger and 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 everything getting bigger along with it. So it's it's been a real a real great rocket ride. And the reason why uh, I wanted to have you on is because I know your affection for what came in at number four for my best bourbons of the century so far, and that's the Parker's Heritage, uh, the 11-year-old that came mm -hmm. out in 2017. So tell us tell us about what that particular release uh, meant to you and why you loved it so much. Well, um, you know, all the, the all the Parker's Heritage releases, of course, were, were you know, true labors of love. And... And, you know, part of the reason that that, you know, that series is always so near and dear to me and 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 to Linda, I think, and was to Parker is that, you know, that was the time that we kind of said, OK, we need something that that does two things. One, that that's kind of celebrates Parker and who he is against his will, mind you, he, he wasn't particularly in favor of that side of it. But. But, you know, I'm, I mean, as you know very well, Parker was a, a force in the distilling world and, and, um, and was a never-ending source of, of inspiration and, and humor and, and all those other great things. So, um, you know, the, the opportunity to, to, to kind of put his name on something was something that was a, a bit of a personal mission on, on mine and Josh and a lot of people at Heaven Hill's uh, part. Um, and, uh, uh, it's funny kind of when you think back, because there was a time, uh, when, uh, Parker's father was master distiller, when Jim Beam wouldn't even allow us to use Earl Beam's last name. And, uh, uh he was referred to in the materials as Mr. Earl. And, uh, I always kind of thought that just doesn't sound right, you know? And I remember when we first started creating communications from Parker and newsletters and things like that, uh, there was some talk about calling him Mr. Parker. And I said, my God, he, that sounds like a hairdresser. I don't want to do that. And so, so this kind of represented coming full circle, you know, really putting Parker's name and, and everything about him kind of on the label. And so that was the first thing that was really great about the Parker's heritage. But the second thing, of course, from a, a whiskey lover standpoint is that it allowed us to do really cool releases in limited numbers so that we weren't constrained by oh my God, we have to have 600 barrels of this to, to, to do it. I mean, it was, of course, the time when a lot of people were doing, you know, cool limited edition releases. We weren't the first one to do it, certainly, but, but this was kind of our, our space in which we could do, you know, extra aged and, 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 and finished and, and all kinds of cool products 
Um, the first, you know, nine or ten of which, of course, were done hand in hand with Parker. Um, so, so you know, the Parker's Heritage Collection, for those reasons, you know, just was such a great um, product and such a, a great product to work on for for me and for the entire uh, team at Heaven Hill, and I know for Parker and Linda as well. Um, but this, the 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 release that you're talking about, the number eleven release, of course, was the release that that came out after Parker passed. And um, so, you know, I mean, Parker had, uh, of course, you know, been, um, uh, you know, suffering with ALS for, for six years, I think, at that point. And, um, and, and as you know, as well as anybody, um, his passing, though it obviously didn't come as a surprise because he had ALS, but he, he never went through you know, quite the hell, he went through certainly some hell, but he didn't go through quite the hell, I would say, that a lot of people that have ALS and suffer for longer than he did and end up far more incapacitated than he did. Um, so, you know, Parker's passing was, of course, a shock to us all, but um, but so this this release really was was all about that. It was all about the fact that Parker had passed and and what could we do in a line that of course had already had such great bottlings in it already and it already reflected so much of parker's character but what could we do to further kind of um capture parker's you know immortalize parker in a way in in this particular bottling so we actually kind of went back to the basics on it and and you know for those of us that knew him quite well as as you did Parker wasn't somebody that was shy about sharing his opinions about things. So we pretty much knew kind of where Parker's head was in terms of uh, what kind of whiskey he, he, he loved best. I would say he loved them all, but perhaps what he loved best, um, you know, the, the, the ages, the, the warehouse locations, all these types of things. So, so that's kind of where we went with this um, was we, we said kind of what would Parker, you know, what was the essence of Parker? You know, what what types of, of um, uh, whiskeys did he love and how could we, as best as we could, kind of put those together in this edition for him? So we went with an age, you know, Parker always loved that 10, 11 year old age. He, he, he always, you know, back in the day, he, he when we didn't really have any of these super premium brands, when really all, all we had was was Evan Williams 1783. He always loved 1783 because it was a 10 year old back then and, and it was a great, great age. And so he's always just kind of loved that age. And um, and, and the Evan Williams single barrel, of course, is around that age. And uh, he also, of course, loved the the way the warehouses in Dietzville um, aged whiskey. He had, we had done another release that had come from Dietzville warehouses. and. As you know, you've been in them before, and they're they're you know we've got a few of them. Makers have got a few of them, um, and they're great old tiered warehouses in a beautiful location that gets tons of sunshine and lots of great uh, ventilation, and they're just beautiful warehouses. So uh, we always knew he loved the whiskey that was kind of drawn from those middle to you know upper floors, not too high, but they, they had those little cupolas on those where you could really get some some crazy aging going on. But he loved the, those those warehouses. So that was kind of where we went with it. And a, a single barrel, of course, was was kind of a nod to the fact that he was the one that that started all the single barrels with Heaven Hill, with Evan Williams single barrel, Henry McKenna single barrel, and Elijah Craig 
single barrel back in the day. And um, so a single barrel, 10, 11, well, 11 years old in this instance, because it was the 11 edition of Parker's um, from Dietzville, um, seemed like about the right thing to do. And, uh, and we released it at, at, uh, at, a, at a nice high barrel proof. And so it, would, it just kind of clicked all the buttons that, again, without Parker being there, that we thought, you know, Parker would look down and say, damn, you know, that's, a, that's how I like a bourbon. So uh, that was kind of our goal in, in this. And, you know, as I said, they're all, they all were um, uh, missions of love. And, and, but this one in particular, having just lost Parker, kind of took on a very special meaning uh, for all of us. So, um, so that, that kind of was the, the thought process behind this one. You know, of course, Parker's, um, you know, these are aged products, very aged products, sometimes finished products. So um, generally the, the, the pipeline on these is, you know, we try and be quite a number of releases ahead on them because they require, you know, planning. You know, we, they're not huge releases, but we want to make sure that we have, you know, a, a number of barrels available just how we want them. So, but this one, um, you know, we, we uh you know, Parker's, you know, death obviously came as a shock to us. So we had to kind of move a little quicker on this one, perhaps, than, than on some of the other ones. So, but again, the way Parker liked his bourbon was a, a fairly, you know, tight box there. And, and it was not something that we had to, to, to go too crazily deep in the inventories for, and we were able, able to come up with. So a particular labor of love, as I said. You know, it's interesting. I, I fell in love with uh, with this release, really. You know, because of the because of the whiskey, and I don't think we'd ever had this conversation about the uh, uh, about like the the time from when he passed to the creation uh, of it, and like how you all kind of planned around that. I mean, I, I mean, I knew it was in his honor, of course, but I didn't know you all went to those details and. Yeah, that was kind of the um, the the idea behind this one was very much kind of Parker's favorite things. I think that was literally our kind of you know little little joke about it at the time. Um, that's what we were trying to capture with this release was, you know, these are the the basic aging regimens that and 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 mash bill and all those things that you know Parker did for frankly his first forty years at the company thereabouts and and. Uh, and really was very comfortable with and loved a lot. And so, uh, and so that really was the kind of, um, you know, the, the idea behind it. So, uh, uh, yeah, happy to, happy to enlighten you. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's, that's good to hear. And, and, you know, for everybody, uh, who's not had the chance to, uh, to learn about Parker, Parker Beam, please, you know, I, in my, in my description, I'll have the, the story uh, I wrote about him and in, in his uh, final days in his obituary. So please check that out because Parker meant uh, a lot to both of us. And I know you've got a lot of good stories. Is there a good story on on Parker you'd like to share? Oh, uh, there's almost an embarrassment of riches with Parker stories. <laughs> um, um, y you know, uh, he... Um, <laughs> um, <laughs> I'll, I'll, well, there, there's a lot of stories, but I'll tell you, uh, Parker used to, used to, my favorite stories that Parker used to tell were really stories that he would tell about um, his family and, and, and in particular trips he would take with, um, with Booker and Baker and David Beam. Um, 
uh, and at what quite a crew, as you can imagine, you know, right. you, you basically got got like, you know, 12,000 years worth of bourbon expertise there and just a bunch of great guys and, and as down to earth guys as you will ever see. And uh, so he used to tell some great stories about um, about going away with them and um, uh, they always would involve, as he would put it, a snootful at some point. But um, I, here's a kind of a funny story that he would tell that kind of ties back in um, uh, with with Parker and and uh, and and my and my interaction with Parker. Um, Parker, uh, <laughs> I, I, you may have heard him tell the story, but uh, he he would tell a story about one time when they went. I think it was in the Gulf uh, Coast somewhere. Um, fishing uh, with Booker and Baker and David, and uh, and they went with a um, a fellow that they called Hudson, and um, and you know they uh, he said you know we got out the boat you know we all had a you know a little bit of uh, bourbon with us and so we had a few drinks on the way out and we get out and we start fishing and and he said poor Hudson just starts turning just as green as can be and. And, you know, poor Hudson just starts throwing up over the rail and and everywhere where Hudson is throwing up, people are catching fish. So so pretty soon Booker's yelling, hey, Hudson, come over here and throw up. And Davis, no, Hudson, come here and throw up. So apparently, uh, you know, it's chumming. I, 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 I don't know what it was, but uh, but the funny the funny little twist on this is um when Parker passed, uh, you were there. I, I was, you know, one of the great honors of my life was I delivered the eulogy for Parker. And I was outside the church and um, and talking to people and uh, somebody comes up to me, an older gentleman, and puts out his hand and say, hi, I just wanted to introduce myself. I'm an old friend of Parker's. My, my name is, is Hudson. And, you know, it was all I could do to just not, not start screaming out, hey, Hudson, throw up over here, you know. Um, it, it was it was just, a, you know, a, but he was such a great guy, and I knew he was a dear friend of, of Parker and Linda's. And, and so, but, you know, I mean, and, you know, he told all kinds of great stories about traveling, particularly with Booker, you can imagine. Um, so uh, someday maybe I will, uh, uh, <laughs> someday maybe I'll write a book about him. <laughs> But uh, th yeah, yeah, there, yeah, he's got tons of great stories, and and maybe some other time we'll we'll get together and I'll I'll trade some more with you. Um, but yeah, Parker was, you know, yeah, I don't know if a father figure was quite right. He was like um, the greatest uncle figure you could ever have, maybe for me, yeah. because uh, we had too much fun together, I think, to really say he was a father figure. But uh, I miss him every day, and uh, and of course uh, I'm still in contact with with Linda and. Uh, so Parker, Parker lives on forever in, in, in all of our hearts. So. And I think a great measure of a man, um, especially after we leave this earth, is how people, you know, speak of them, you know. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it, he's one of the greatest people that I've ever shaken hands with. And, uh, mm -hmm. and, it, was no, and it had nothing to do with the whiskey he made. It was just the human being he was. And, Absolutely, and 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 you know, I mean, you, you'll remember this, but I actually happen to have, excuse me, yeah. this is uh this is actually a, a one of the maybe last bottles of the Parker's Unity um, that we did um, when, of course, he uh, we you know with with he and Linda's uh, cooperation and, and permission uh, told the world what was going on with him and how he was going to kind of 
put all of his energy and, and efforts into the fight against ALS. And, and that's when we finally had the chance to do this great project that I, ever since I saw Black Bottle and Isla, I always wanted to do something where all the distilleries got to do something together. So, um, so we did the Parker's Unity and Parker's Honor. And, and that directly, I think, speaks to what you're talking about. I mean, it's, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a small world to begin with. Um, and it's a very, very small world in the whiskey business. And, you know, for the 40 or 50 years where Parker and Booker and Elmer and Jim and everybody else was making whiskey, um, uh, it was a very small world. And, and of yeah. course it wasn't, a, it wasn't a world of rock stars. It was a world of working men. And, uh, so you are absolutely right. You know, the, the measure of somebody is, is, you know, kind of the, the friends you leave and the, the ones that love you and the relationships you make. And there's no greater tribute to Parker than, than that. I mean, everybody loved and, and misses Parker tremendously. So, and so do my dogs. So do my dogs. <laughs> I bet they did. You probably <laughs> yeah, came with did. treats. <laughs> right. Exactly. They're celebrating a little early. So, <laughs> well, you know, Larry, thanks for coming on and uh, for sharing your memories of Parker and this, how special, uh, this 11-year-old release was. In well, I'm happy to do it. And on behalf of Evan Hill, I should say, you know, thanks so much for, for including not only this, but I know a couple of other whiskeys in your in your top list. And, uh, you know, it's uh, it's been a, a pleasure to work with you all the years and, and, and really to watch you kind of uh, ascend uh, to, to the heights that you, you've gone to. But yeah, it's particularly an honor, I think, for for this whiskey and and given your relationship with parker and linda that uh that it it, it is in the top five and i can say nothing but thank you on behalf of heaven hill and, and parker and linda so absolutely and it's with that i say that you know i wouldn't be on this list if it wasn't great whiskey and the man who made it was also great so absolutely um it's just always a pleasure to chat with you and uh, I'm gonna you know need to see if what, what was his name again the the throw up guy what was his name Hudson. Hudson. I got to find Hudson. Yeah, yeah I, I, I should. You know, I'm going gonna, I'm, I'm to get yelled at for now. His first name was Bill Bill Hudson. It was his last name. And oh, okay. Darn it. I'm on the spot here, and, I, and I'm just not coming up with his Jim, well, Jim listen, Hudson, maybe. I got, a, I got a fishing trip I'm going on. I need to find this guy because yeah, I haven't he, been lucky he, this year. Apparently, his dietary uh, habits are, are much to the liking <laughs> of the game fish. So, yeah, seek him out. So. All right, my friend. We'll be safe out there, and I look forward to chatting soon. You too, Fred. Be well. Thanks Cheers. so much. Bye-bye. Larry and I are really tight. Like, we could go on and on and talk about uh, South Park forever. Like, you should see our texts over the years. We we comment on South Park episodes like it's crazy. Uh, but coming in at number three is actually uh, someone I think is, is, is the most underrated person in all of whiskey. Not just American whiskey. All of whiskey. And that is Andrea Wilson. Andrea is with the is with Michter's. Prior to that, she was with uh, Diageo, and she's got a she's got a real knack for understanding the science of barrels. And so we talk about that and what it's like to age older whiskeys. And I really do hope you get a chance to listen to this entirety because her her knowledge of whiskey is so strong. She is so dadgum amazing. So enjoy this interview with Andrea Wilson. How are you, Andrea? I'm very well. Thank you very much. Thanks for including us. This is very exciting. Well, you all have had a lot of incredible uh, releases. Now, this is oh, this is uh, 
this list is only bourbon. So I, you know, the rise and the celebrations and the toasted, those types of things did not get consideration. So these were basically, this was basically me putting a list together of the best, like, you know, straight bourbons of the 21st century so far. And I'll never forget tasting the 20-year-old the Michters for the first time. And, you know, 2010, 2012 time frame, that was when I was really into wine. And I remember breaking that thing down as, a, as if it was a left bank Bordeaux. It just, it was so fruity. It was so caramelly. It was just absolutely gorgeous. And, and you were... I, were you at Michter's at this point, or were you still with uh, Diageo? I was still with Diageo okay. at that time. I over to Michter's in 2014. Okay, so you, so this came out just before you had uh, came over, but, but of course you were privy to all that was going on with the whiskey. So tell us about the 20 year old uh, from that time frame. Why, why was it so special? Why was it so complex? <laughs> um. Well, first of all, I guess, let me say, I, I think, it, you know, it was pre my time here at Michter's. So it was part of our phase one operation. So, mm. you know, if you know about Michter's, Michter's uh, phase one operation was really Joe uh, and his family sourcing barrels across the beautiful state of Kentucky um, to that he really felt were going to be of a flavor profile that he would want Michter's to be in the future. And then phase two um, being contract distilling with a great Kentucky distillery, and then moving on to phase three, which is our full campus here in Shively, uh, where we now produce um, and distill. Um, so those are kind of the three phases that we refer to. Uh, these were barrels that were sourced during phase one. Now, I know everybody always wants to know where were they sourced from and what was the mash bill. <laughs> The trouble with all of that is that, um, you know, obviously when you purchase something, there's a legally binding agreement. So I can't disclose that uh, information, but I always tell people, I think it's part of the beauty. It's part of the mystery of this beautifully luxurious whiskey. I think in Michter's case, what makes it so amazing is that it's not overly oaked. Like, this is a whiskey that for me, and you know, these, I don't have probably the same sophistication of um, uh, words that you do, Fred, in terms of descriptors, but what I recall about this whiskey is there's this incredible, like, black cherry um, depth to it that has this beautiful licorice characteristic, and it's got this very gentle, um, oakiness to it and that's one of the signatures of Michter's is that the gentle maturity that is shown through these whiskeys these are whiskey this is a whiskey that's aged over 20 years it's um it's long finish mm -hmm. but you're not left feeling like gosh it seems so woody and so overpowering with the wood experience and that's part of creating the delicate balance of, you know, all of the esters that come through um, the fermentation process, but then balancing that with the beautiful, beautiful oak extractives that come later through the maturing cycle. So I always tell people, you know, everybody wants to talk about the mash bill. Everybody wants to talk about, you know, the distillation. Everybody wants to talk about that, but really 
the creation of something beautiful like the Michter's 20 year is this process of so much that has gone into the front end of the process, but then so much that's also gone into the, the back end of the process. It's a complicated series of many reactions, many processes, many variables over time, but it's really the attention to detail and looking after all of that over time that gets you that result. And this, this, uh, this 20 year old too, it also has a kind of a special place in my career in that it was the first time that I had uh, declared a whiskey of the year. Um, and, you know, when I did that, you know, for tasting panel, uh, I was still, you know, I, I, I had been covering bourbon for a bit, but that was kind of um, that, that was kind of a moment for me. So like it has a and, and what one of the things that I remember thinking at that time was that this was one of the first brands that is is kind of following that model that like Pappy, like Julian had done with Pappy Van Winkle and showcasing older stocks like really, really well. You know, a lot of times those older stocks come out and they're just over oaked and and it just seems like continuously, whether it's the ten year or a twenty year or twenty five year old rye, it just seems like continuously Michter's has just done a great job with with older whiskeys and I, i'm i'm curious as to how you all are able to do that um you know and not have like an over oak note or have any of that kind of like dead wood note that you get in a lot of those because i've never gotten that in any of your older releases i mean is it a special filtration process is it just taste in the barrels what is it <laughs> yeah it's a it's a combination of several things so you know, um, one thing is the sampling process. Obviously, sampling these whiskeys over time, you know, we, we really want to mo monitor how their character is changing. Um, a lot of people believe, you know, oh, gosh, after it gets over a certain age, you know, not much else happens. Things do continue to happen inside the wood. It may not be as active as it was earlier in its life cycle, but things do continue to happen. And as we all know, there's the angel share, you know, which is, mm -hmm. is essentially, you know, the act of you're concentrating that liquid inside that barrel. So you have to monitor it. You have to look after it. What one of the things we do here at Michter's is after something reaches its peak of maturity, especially if it's starting to take on characters that we don't believe are consistent with the Michter's profile, we're going to go ahead and take it out of wood. Now, it stops the aging, so uh, whatever that age is when it's done, that's what it is. But we will then preserve that flavor profile, that character, all of its goodness um, in a stainless steel drum. So it acts like a mini tank for us. That's where we'll keep it till we're ready for it. How long, so may you, one way how long you might it, you hold on to it uh, when they're in those steel drums? Um, you know, it, it varies. The idea is not to keep it in, you know, drum for, you know, another 20 years. We want to use them. So if, if we remove it from wood, um, the idea is that it's probably going to go in the next cycle of that, you know, release because we Got don't want to hold it um, forever. Um, mm. You know, a, a drum is a drum and you can seal it the best of your ability. 
but it still has the act of breathing. So, um, you know, we want to make sure that we're trying to control it as much as we can and minimize um, any further loss to that liquid. Mm-hmm. So, so there's that. Um, the other thing is that if people know mictors, you know, one of our um, processes is the act of custom chill filtration. So I know that a lot of people debate uh, chill filtration. And um, what I will say is for mictors, it is an intrinsic part of how we make our whiskeys. We believe that it's about accentuating every whiskey's best characteristics Mm -hmm. and by creating a skillful, thought-filled filtration Mm -hmm. that is based on science um, and a true understanding of that liquid that has taken years to develop that we can create a really beautiful experience for the consumer and that's one of the things that um, is a sign, you know, one of the signature philosophies of Nictors. And of course, like now, like you, you could, when you guys were acquiring barrels from other distilleries, you couldn't control this. But now, uh, you all have like the lowest barrel entry proof in uh, of the larger distilleries at at a, at a hundred and three. And you know, this is this is your field. This is your your bread and butter. When it you know you lo- uh, you're the you're the barrel entry proof expert in Amer- in, in American whiskey, and um, and I'm curious. Does uh, the lower you go, does it give you a little bit more life uh, of in the barrel, and you would you get less of the of the wood the longer you go? Yeah, I, I believe that when you are entering in, in a lower entry proof, you, you know, so one of the things to understand is that if we enter into wood at 103 proof, we're about 75% whiskey. In the barrel, we're about 25% water. So that water um, is a powerful hydrolyzer. Everybody, you know, if you think about sugar, just dissolving sugar in a glass, how simple that is. It's the same with the wood sugars that come from the barrel. So it really provides a lot of opportunity for chemistry to happen. So you get a lot of chemistry happening earlier in the life cycle of the barrel, but then um, it allows for a little bit more richer chemistry that takes longer um, to play out over time. But it's not the only thing here that influences, you know, the profile of our whiskeys. The low entry proof, um, along with the way we naturally season and air dry the wood, um, the way that we toast our barrels, all of those things, uh, when we make, uh, you know, mixers at our facility today are how we, you know, manage uh, collectively the profile of those whiskeys over the long haul. But certainly... Um, for this whiskey that was sourced, yes, I would say, um, you know, there's not too much I can tell you about its history, but I can say that, you know, we've, we've worked hard to try to look after the whiskey, um, that may have had a different set of variables to ensure that, you know, we created a great outcome. Well, just consistently, you all have these, like I said, like, all, all the older whiskeys are, are just fantastic. And I just, actually, I just polished off my, uh, just a, a regular Michter's, uh, last night. And it was, um, 
it went, it went quite well with the TV show I was watching, by the way. And, uh, you know, I mean, the you guys have kind of crossed that, that line now where everybody knows you. And, you know, when this when this release came out, no one really knew Michter's. Uh, it was still kind of a new brand for, for a lot of people. And now it's nationwide. You guys are on billions all the time. And, you know, it, you know, it's, uh, it's gotten a lot of acclaim for, for, for good reason. So now that you all, you guys have been distilling at the Shively plant since 2012, right? 2012, 2013. Yes. Yeah. Uh, we, we received our distiller's license back in 2012 and, um, we bought, brought the big column still operation here online in um, the summer of 2015, um, in August of 2015. And so uh, we started laying down product um, at that time. So we're not too far away from a, um, from one of your like Shively distilleries, like older releases. I'm, I'm very excited about that because I've had the <laughs> distillate, I've had the whiskey out of the barrel and Everything that I've tasted is like stuff's progressing nicely, and I can't wait to see um, how how the stocks taste at like ten years old. And um, man, good things to look forward to, Andrea. <laughs> we 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 are as well. I mean, it's such an exciting time. Thank you for all your your kind comments. We, you know, I I just want to say one thing, and it, it's really a testament to the team here. I think the family has done a brilliant job of really putting together a very successful team. We work together very well. We work very hard. We're equally as passionate as the family. Um, and it's all of this, you know, enthusiasm and excitement and passion for this family, for this brand to really deliver something that, um, is amazing for our consumer base. And that's something that we really believe in. So, you know, when, when we talk about trying to make the best American whiskey, that's truly a goal that we have every day. It's not some marketing tagline. It's something that we as individuals here work really hard to deliver every day. So yeah, we're super excited. Uh, the whiskey is really good. We think people are going to love it. And, um, we're really excited on, on the journey, and and um, this team has done a great job of looking after all the details. Now, here's the other part. Um, while this while this is on the list for the best bourbons of the century so far, I don't think it's the best thing that you guys have put out this century. You want to you want to take a guess of what my favorite Michter's product is of of the 21st century? I don't know. I don't know. I, oh. I, I, I'm all full of lots of ideas right now, but I, I, <laughs> I'm excited to hear what you have to say. The 25 year old rye uh, okay. from 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 that time. Um, I mean, it's probably it, it's either the best rye I've ever tasted, or it's like real close to uh, a couple others from. Uh, you know, the pre 1960s when they changed the barrel entry proof, but it's just, I mean, that rye was just heavenly. And then celebration, the, the last celebration that came out was to me was another level of, uh, complexity. So again, you all are, you all are hitting those, uh, you know, the, the, all the good, uh, palate points with those higher, you know those higher echelon whiskeys, and I just think that's I think that's great because we 
we need more of that, but we also still need that, you know, forty dollar uh, bourbon and forty under forty dollar bourbon, and your your stuff's doing just fine there as well. Yeah, I I think it's uh, you know these these whiskeys are incredible, but I, I will just say I am never disappointed with you know just purchasing a bottle of our regular U.S. one line, our bourbon, rye, American sour mash. They they have the same equal passion in them. They just maybe don't have a similar, you know, age profile. But, you know, even our basic U.S. one line is between five to seven years old. So, um, you know, and with all the things that we're doing with the natural seasoning and air drying of the wood to get rid of bitter green characters, toasting to allow access and um, integration of more of the wood extractives and, um, and then the heat cycling. So during the winter months when we naturally, um, you know, we heat up the warehouse, but then we naturally cool down to increase the interaction between the wood and the whiskey. All of those things are increasing the maturity profile of that whiskey as well. Um, so you can get a great, uh, a really great whiskey experience, um, you know, with just buying our everyday bourbon, but certainly the, the complexity, as we all know, you know, develops and continues to develop over the, the aging cycle. And that's something that creates um, a beautiful whiskey in your glass that uh, you can sit with for a long time and keeps giving you different experiences. And that's one of the beauties of the older products is how they oxidize and um, uh, evaporate in your glass really can contribute to an overall great um, older whiskey experience as well. And let's not forget uh, the toast. Michter's Toasted has become one of the more uh, highly sought after releases uh, that are coming out every year. So um, you can't find a bottle of that. And believe me, I've tried. So. <laughs> well, thank you. The toasted releases uh, are really fun to do. Um, basically we take, so if we, if it's our, uh, we just released our toasted, uh, barrel strength, barrel finish rye, uh, here for, uh, bourbon heritage month in September. And basically we take our rye, we age it five to seven years, just like we normally would. And then we take that single barrel, we dump it and we put it into the, the contents of that single barrel, then go into a toasted only barrel with a specific profile uh, and um, they are aged there for a period of time that we don't share. Uh, every time we do it, you know, there's something slightly different. So we don't, uh, we choose not to share that information, but it really is amazing. In the case of the rye, kind of kicks up the rye characteristic um, really brings in some notes that are very interesting to the product. There's some salty caramel, some coffee characteristics, some, some nuts like pecans and walnuts. I mean, it's just a beautiful, beautiful whiskey um, and super fun to do. Same thing with our toasted bourbon. Same idea. We age our bourbon and then we put it in a toasted only barrel for a period of time. Um, and then last year we did for the first time our toasted sour mash, which was actually one of the more difficult toast profiles to do because the, the sour mash product being so delicate and elegant, you didn't want to overpower the sour mash. 
to make it a completely different whiskey such that it was not recognizable as the sour mash. You want to be able to sit it next to, you know, the, the barrel strength rye next to the toasted rye, bourbon next to the toasted bourbon, sour mash next to the toasted sour mash, and really be able to experience what is the nuance of difference that's being imparted by that mm. toasted wood. That, does, does the sour mash have any used barrels in the composite at all? No. No, okay. Yeah, I, I was I was wondering uh, because I did I did pick up you know when I when I tasted it it I had a when I had the sour mash uh, toasted I, I got I got a, like a, a unique kind of like a corn whiskey from like I felt like it was a little bit of like a used barrel kind of like flavor so I, I can see how that one being so delicate being a little bit different on the on the toasting side so I, that makes a lot of sense you explaining it that way. So, but they're, you know, they're fun whiskeys to drink that people seek them out. Um, we've been very, um, you know, people have been very supportive of that line of products. And so um, I'm sure we will continue to do them. Well, Andrea, it's always a pleasure to chat with you. Uh, I know 2020 has not been, you know, the best, uh, best of times, but, you know, this list was kind of my way of, of trying to celebrate uh, Kentucky Bourbon Heritage Month in a time where we can't get together for Bourbon and Beyond, we can't get together for the Kentucky Bourbon Festival, um, you know, and it's in and so like this list is really a celebration, and it's a celebration of the greatest bourbons that you know I've tasted in the century so far, and you know I, I think there could be a really solid argument to be made for Victor's twenty year old actually being number one and. Uh, you know, maybe if I had another bottle, you know, to kind of taste again. <clears throat> um, <laughs> yeah, I'm out. I'm out of it. But my notes and my memory are very strong on that one. And it was great, great bourbon, one of the greatest bourbons I ever tasted. So congratulations to, to you all at Michter's and uh, keep up the good work, especially with those older releases. Thank you so much, Fred. It's a tremendous honor. Thank you so much for um, everything that you do, not only for, um, you know, just this, you know, bringing forward Michter's and sharing this story, but um, just everything you do for the bourbon industry. We really appreciate um, it's difficult for everyone this year, and it means a lot just to have something you know, we always all talk about how bourbon brings people together and having a forum to talk yeah. about the experiences and, um, you know, sharing information. I think it's really wonderful. I appreciate all that you do. And it's such an honor. Thank you so much. Be safe out there. And I look forward to toasting you again uh, in person one day. All right. Bye now. Cheers, my friend. I hope you enjoyed that interview with uh, Andrew Wilson, one of my favorite people in all of whiskey. Now, coming up at number two is one that's probably going to surprise a lot of people, but if you have been into whiskey as long as I have and you got an opportunity to taste Jefferson 17-year-old, you know how great this whiskey is, and we get the backstory behind Jefferson 17-year-old with Trey Zoller, who is more famous for taking his whiskey out in the ocean than he is this particular product. Enjoy the interview. Thanks for the kind words. Well, you've had an amazing, you've had an amazing uh, career and an incredible, uh, you know, rise to to where you are now. And I always like to, you know, talk about the, uh, I always like to talk about the connection between you and your father and 
and how you all kind of like did this together. Yeah, you know what? That was um, probably the best part of the whole thing. It's been a hell of a run for the last 23 years. Um, but being able to start this with my dad and work together and you know, kind of share this passion together was definitely the highlight of it. Still is the highlight of it. We yeah. uh, got together this two days ago on Sunday and uh, drank some bourbon together and talked about it. And that's just, it, it's something that I hope I can pass on to my kids that they will have uh, the same interest. And um, it was just a really great experience. Take us back to the early days. What was it like uh, starting <laughs> a, a brand in the 1990s? Well, as I've said before, I, I was too dumb to know better. And that uh, that was the only thing that kept me in the game. Um, you know, Fred, I grew up here and like everybody here, you grow up drinking bourbon and think that everybody drinks bourbon. And um, I've often said my go to my grandmother's house. She didn't ask you what you wanted to drink. Rather, how do you take your bourbon? And it wasn't until I left here and moved a half dozen different places around the country that I realized everybody didn't drink bourbon. And I didn't realize that bourbon was in a 30 year decline and you didn't have the selection of bourbons that you had in Kentucky. You could find Jim Beam, Wild Turkey, maybe Maker's Mark if you were lucky. And that was about it. So I was naive enough to think that if you know, I knew about all the distillers here that had warehouses bulging with great old bourbons that they couldn't give away. And I was naive to think enough to think that if I started collecting some of these small little lots of bourbon that I could put my hands on and seven out of the eight of them were willing to sell, um, you know, that we could bottle up something that I thought was better than what was really popular in the marketplace, which was single malt scotches at the time. Mm -hmm. And I, I thought, man, we've got a better product than they do. It's, you know, tastes so much better. We've got this great, great, great old juice. Um, let's, let's take it out and everybody's going to love it. And we're going to sell a ton and life's going to be great, <laughs> but you couldn't give it away back then. And you, during that process, you were you were buying a lot of stocks from places like Stitzel Weller, and and now think what what would you pay for a barrel from Stitzel Weller in like the in the nineties and early two thousands? You want to take a guess? Uh five hundred bucks. No more than that, but I'll tell you exactly in just a second. But recently, this was just prior to COVID. I had a salesperson in town. And we went to the Distillers Club in the Marriott here in town. He ordered one pour, and it was more expensive than what I paid for per barrel. <laughs> um, and this was, and I can't remember the year. I think it was 2010 that I bought it. Um, but we paid $1,200 a barrel, and we bought 400 barrels. Uh, the first dump of 100 barrels, 12 were dry. So uh, we weren't getting a, a tremendous yield out of it by any stretch of the imagination. But, uh, you know, that's those things were available back then at a pretty damn good price. I bought some other stuff that, you know, I remember hearing about people selling off old bourbon for the price of the used barrel just to get it off their books. Mm. Why, do you, why do you think that, um, like, you're – 
Like you were one of the few people who actually believed in old bourbon. Why do you think it took uh, uh, bourbon distillers uh, so long to believe in bourbons that were over 15 years old? Well, I think first the issue was, you know, when you're when supply just totally outpaces demand. All the distillers, and you know, this is something I get to lean on my dad for. He identified over 2,500 distilleries in Kentucky alone paying taxes prior to prohibition, and there were eight when I got into the business. So, due to consolidation and people going out of business, and they had these great stocks, they just started slashing prices, trying to give it away. And so there was a perception problem with bourbon at the time. People kind of looked down their noses at it. It was the redheaded stepchild from Kentucky and Tennessee and just, you know, it, it didn't have that cachet. And, you know, I, I think um, it was also this time of the, you know, the 70s where TV dinners and blended scotches and that's what was in vogue. Um, it wasn't until single malts started coming out and started utilizing some of their um, older barrels that people started putting, you know, kind of a, a, attaching, um, you know, a, a high, you know, kind of a prized look at those, those higher ends. And, you know, we, we did a few things with Van Winkles back then. They couldn't get, you know, they were having a hard time selling it as well. It's amazing it was, when you uh, think about that, you know, just like now, like the demand that's there. And, and you know, I put, uh, uh, I've told I've told a lot of people that you have, you have one of the best uh, blending palettes that are out there. And, and the example I always give is, um, you know, the 17 year old. And of course, it makes my best bourbons of the century so far at, at number two. And uh, take, take us back to the creation of the Jefferson's 17 year old, what was it? How did you get the barrels and you know, what was your mindset going in with, with the creation of it? Well, there were a couple of things going on one and I appreciate that. Thank you for saying that I, I, I've been blending for a long time. You know, we started off doing a 15 year old with Jefferson's reserve, a Sam Houston, 10 year old and a number of different products. And as I was putting those little lots of bourbon together, I started blending I think it was 2002 um, that we started getting away from putting out you know, old iron skillet, Jefferson's reserve, Sam Houston, and, you know, blending together. And I know if anybody else was blending, they weren't talking about it then. And to me, that's what was interesting. So um, that was a lot of fun for me. Um, and, you know, having access to these small lots allowed me to be able to taste all those barrels and try to put them together. Um, I was purchasing from a number of people back then, um, sourcing and starting to contract about that time. Uh, I got a call really out of the blue. And with companies like that, uh, you have people in procurement that are in a category for a couple of years and then they move on and they bring somebody else in. And so I'd been working with a guy um, who, uh, who actually is at, at uh, Sazerac right now, but he was obviously with Diageo at the time and he was moving on. Uh, actually he was moving from bourbons and whiskeys to the wine 
uh, division of Diageo. He called me up and he said, Trey, I've got 400 barrels of the last of what was made at Stitzel Weller. Would you be interested in it? And, you know, I was kind of trying to disguise and have a poker face on it. I think my tail was wagging behind me, giving it away. Like, yeah, send me some samples and let me know what we're talking about as price. And I'll let you know. So, yeah, uh, my poker face probably wasn't too good on that one. But uh, he sent some samples and they were, were fantastic. We were able to put a deal together. Um, and, you know, there wasn't a big demand for it at the time. Um, we came out with it. This is before, uh, you know, the, the Van Winkle juice had, had really taken off. We priced it um, at $99 a bottle and, you know, I had a hard time giving it away. So we bottled it up three different times as a 17 year old, as an 18 year old, and then as a 20 year old that was actually in that 18 year old bottle. So they were in smaller um, allotments, but you know, it was great. I got to taste every one of those barrels, see what was in there. As I said, there were quite a few that were dry. Um, and some of them had turned, but I think certainly in my mind and in a lot of others that it peaked at 17 years old. Yeah. By the time we bottled it at 18, diminishing returns. Yeah. So I, I felt like the, the 18 year old definitely was lovely. Don't get me wrong, but right. that, but that 17 year old was just otherworldly special. You know, it just had, um, it just had a, a complexity to it and i've got i've got some of my favorite bourbons like in my house like uh just kind of the empty bottles just sitting up there jefferson 17 sitting right there at the top of my little mantle here's bottle oh. one of batch one of oh. 17 year old oh my so wow pretty pretty fun bottle that I, yeah. yeah, that's, that's one uh, that I won't open up. Yeah, so what's your address again, and when are you going on vacation? <laughs> I forgot. <laughs> yeah, that, I've got 15-year-old twins. I'm more worried about <laughs> them having a party and one of their friends grabbing something like that. Oh, boy, I, I would lock up all <laughs> your stuff when you leave town. Yeah, I've got it locked up. <laughs> that's, that's what I need to do. So you were... So, uh, so that so tell me tell me like uh what was the full uh how many bottles did seven the 17 year old have do you remember i don't i'll tell you a couple things happened to that so why one i, I think that's when it, it you know it hit its peak and two i picked out what i thought were the best or the better barrels within that for that first bottling mm -hmm. um i don't recall how many we did on that first one, but I, th as I said, we dumped a hundred barrels, 12 of them were dry. Um, so that, I think it was smaller than that. I think we did about 70 bottles for the first batching. Mm -hmm. um, we had to toss out some of those and um, that's what we pulled it. So, you know, what was kind of fun about that, I got a call from Julian about that time and he called me up and he said trey i underhand, understand you've got my juice will you sell it back to me i said sure one bottle at a time i'd love to <laughs> <laughs> i think he 
mumbled a few things under his breath and <laughs> said, all right. But uh, yeah, and I remember actually being at a bourbon fest with him. I don't even remember where we were, but he came over and tried it. This is where we would freely pour a 17-year-old at a, a bourbon festival, try to get people to buy in, you know, a few cases at a time. He's like, yep, awfully familiar. <laughs> <laughs> Now, what are the what are the things that I think is is the mystery uh, to a lot of us is is proofing water and, and and proofing it down to the right to the right uh, you know flavor profile, and you obviously didn't do this one at cast strength. What was what was your strategy of getting it to where it was because it was perfect? To me, that's and you know we've done very little cast strength. The only cast strength that I've done is our uh, cast strength ocean voyage, which only comes off at 112, 114 proof because we lose, you know, that alcohol just burns off first. That being said, I, you know, and I know it's not popular right now, but I'm not big on, you know, big, big proofed uh, bourbons because, you know, I, I think you lose, it can burn out your tongue pretty quickly. Mm-hmm. So, um, I, you know, just kept playing around with it until I found it, you know, what I thought was the best way to drink this and to drink it neat. So that's what I try to do with all of our products, how you would drink it neater on the rocks. To me, what is the most complex, what we're going to get the most flavors out of. Mm-hmm. Um, now, to, you know, that came out at 94 proof. And that's where I thought that that was going to show off everything that that product had so you nailed it i mean you nailed it and i know it was some time ago and your your business models uh changed to you know really to kind of show more of uh, of your style versus like you know acquiring other people's uh stocks like you kind of started taking more control of your business and doing finishing and of course uh the the ocean series which is a big hit I'm curious, you know, and I know you, I know we've, we've had a lot of these conversations in the past, but do you, do you miss those days when you could get, get those barrels and, and bottle them at, at, um, at dated years or with age statements, or do you, do you prefer where you are now with, you know, kind of like what you're known for more with the finishing? Well, it's a combination. Uh, you know, we've done 19 different expressions of Jefferson's and, um, you know, 17 of those 19, we're manipulating something in it. We're not just distilling it, aging it, cutting to proof and bottle. Obviously, I'm kind of proud of what we did with cutting it on the 17-year-old and picking out those barrels. But I really enjoy trying to push the boundaries and definitions of what bourbon is while staying within the parameters and kind of tipping our hat. That's why we're always using fully mature whiskey. So that's kind of fun for, to come up with a product that that's really um, with those that haven't done, haven't been done before. Do I wish I could still, and we still do, believe it or not. I still am able to source some older whiskey um, from time to time, which you know, has, you know, they're kind of hidden gems. And when I'm able to pick them up, you know, I've been doing it for 23 years and um, you're one of most, the first phone calls people make when they, when they have some stocks. Yeah. So, yeah. And one, you know, I, I would love to say who we're getting it from. The reason I do it with Stitzel Weller is because they were defunct. And at the time, 
Diageo didn't mind us doing that. Mm-hmm. Um, everyone else, I, I would pound my chest because they make damn good whiskey. Just contractually, I can't do it. So, Is there a little bit more it, coming up on the market because of the pandemic? Well, not because of the pandemic. Um, there's more... And when I say younger, I'm still talking four to eight year old. Okay. There's more two year old than anything, but there's more four to eight year old than there has been in the last few years. There's still not, you know, after 10 years old, there's not much around right now. Everybody, you know, the pandemic has been good to the bourbon industry. Um, you know, it's awful what's happened to the on-premise, but luckily for us, the off-premise is, you know, it's on fire. And uh, people, you know, this is kind of like what happened in 2008, which was really, in my mind, what pushed bourbon to where it is today. It was you know, when the country, you know, when the Great Recession happened, people started looking at value again. About the same time, smartphones were readily available and people could dig in and find the history and find the story and really kind of geek out on bourbons. And um, they wanted to do that. And, you know, What's great about our products and a lot of other bourbons out there, you, you can take a bottle to a friend's house. You know, these are small gatherings, so they're intimate settings, and people are sharing the story of what's in that bottle. And that happens more when things like the pandemic and the Great Recession have happened. And it's not everybody out at bars and, you know, cheersing and you know, doing shots of this or that or, you know, it, it's it's sharing intimate moments and uh, that's going to help a category like bourbon. Well, you're one of the, you're, you're one of the, you know, future leaders of that. Well, I would say, I can't really say future anymore. You're like in the, you're in your prime, you know, so you're um, you've, you've been doing, I'm pushing the envelope and in what bourbon is and, you know, taking whiskey out on uh, cruise ships or, or ocean liners and, and so you've been you've been an incredible you've had an incredible journey and you know I um, I I I tell every like I said earlier man I tell everyone you have one of the one of the greatest blending palettes uh, in the business and I think the 17 year old and really the 18 year old and the 20 year old as well I think those are great you know attributes to you know someone who can like. Um, you know, proof it down to the right proof to where it's the the right flavor, and the and the oceans line. I mean, that's just probably the the most creative thing anyone has ever done. So, uh, it's interesting to see like how you have progressed over over your career, and now you're with Pernod Ricard, and you got a you know pretty pretty strong company behind you too. Well, thank you. And and I do. And I think we're about to start seeing what that can do. And I'm really excited about what the future holds. I've got some blending projects coming up with some really unique things. And I'm going to kind of pay homage to my eighth generation grandmother who got arrested for moonshining and bootlegging in 1799 and uh, do some really small blends, uh, kind of like what she would have done back then. By the way, I'm actually push, making a push to get her pardoned. I thought if Susan B. <laughs> Anthony can get pardoned, why can't we get Marion McLean pardoned? So, um, and then I think uh, we're going to have something 
really, really um, something that's never been done in the whiskey industry before. Uh, that's that's hopefully going to be as game changing as the ocean was, and uh, really excited about that. So, all right, so that's my, about eighteen months away. My my first guest is is you've you've um, you're working with. Um, uh, SpaceX and you're flying some barrels <laughs> to the moon or you got a con you got a warehouse built on Mars, you know, so where you got an underwater, you got an underwater, uh, you know, submarine or something like that. That's going to be a warehouse. So, I mean, who knows? Well, I, I tell you what, it, we, we've have been contacted by something, somebody called space tango who works with SpaceX about taking some vials up there, but, you know, I don't want to jump the shark and get gimmicky on this. And, and, you know, people, when they talk about the ocean, almost everybody that's written about it said, when I first heard about this, I thought it was a gimmick and then I tried it. And hopefully what we're going to see with this next progression, people are going to understand it and think that it, it, it's pretty groundbreaking. So um, we don't want to do anything that that's uh, jumping the shark. Um, and I think this won't be, but it, it's going to be, it's going to be unique. All right. So well, I'm excited, but we're about 18 months out on that one. Still, okay. still working it, but uh, so, pretty pumped up. So the, the Mars expedition meets ocean. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, you know, I, I teased it. I, I don't want to say much more. I got it. Prior to that, we're going to have some of these really, I think, unique blends coming together, which are going to be really small batched. And, um, it, you know, hopefully we can, uh, hopefully we can do a good job on it as I think we can. Well, you know, I, I wish you all the luck in the world and I'm glad to hear that success continues. Um, I, um, I'll never forget the moment I met your dad at the, uh, Kentucky book fair. Uh, I was fanboying out in the in the coffee room when we were. This was when my first book came out, Camera Boy, and we and he had he was out there with his book, um, the um, Kentucky Bourbon Distilleries, which everybody should go buy. It's an incredible book. It's a great uh, resource for anybody who's into bourbon. And I remember cornering him in the uh, in the coffee room. Like, oh, so can you tell me more about, you know, uh, the 17-year-old? Can you tell me more about this release? Can you tell me more about this? I mean, I, <laughs> I think I and, I, and I was telling him, I was like, your whiskey smells so much like brandy to me. It's the only one that, you know, the only uh, consistent bourbon that smells like brandy. And he's like, yeah, that's what we were trying to get at. And he was like trying to get away from me. This was before he knew me. <laughs> but uh, I, I might have been a little bit more, a little bit um you know, too, too frontal with him, but, um, well, he's, he's an unbelievable man. And, you know, where his, you know, he loves the bourbon, of course, but his real passion is distilleries in Kentucky. And, you know, I think he's on his fifth edition right now. So yeah. he, he keeps going back to the well of it and keeps scratching. And, you know, in his retirement, that's been his, his hobby. And, uh, it's something that, you know, it's a lot of a place of pride for him. And he, really is into it so he probably would try to steer the conversation back to distilleries and because that's what that he's really into well we need to I mean, make sure we get him in the hall of fame i don't think he's uh 
I, I, I'm not inside those uh, circles when they're talking about the the Bourbon Hall of Fame, but if there is somebody that's out there, it's your father that deserves to be in there, and you uh, as well. I, so. I couldn't agree with you more. Yeah, he's done a lot for it. Well, Trey, I appreciate you taking some time. Congratulations again for coming at number two on my list. Um, yeah, that's awesome. I Can't mean, wait to hear what number one is. Well, you know what? I got to tell you, it was it was close. I mean, you were you were. It was really, really close. Uh, you might, right. you know, maybe if you want to send me that bottle that you just showed us <laughs> earlier, I can, I can taste it up against because I do have a bottle of what's number one. I could taste it up against that, and maybe, maybe we find out. But yeah. well, how about I'll send you something that's not from bottle one of batch one, but of seventeen. Well, maybe, maybe, but no, it, you're at number two. I mean, this was this was one of the hardest list i have ever had to put together and i knew that you were going to be in the top five and as i was you know tasting through and going through my notes and all that and you know comparing what like colleagues had thought and seeing how things did in competitions and all that uh i have to tell you that this was this was it, this was an easy one to put in the top five and when i started talking about that i was going to do this a lot of people had thought that jefferson's 18 year old was going to make the list it did not make the list however if we were to take the list out to like the top 50 of the years you know the century so far it does make that list so uh, you know you you've had a lot of great releases and you know you just continue to push the envelope and um i'm really i'm really glad that you're you you've got Pernod Ricard behind you right now because that's a great whiskey company and um you know hopefully they'll they'll invest in you so I, I think they are and i think they're what's great is they're letting me do my thing and not getting too corporate on it so i think we're going to have a lot of fun together by god all right well you know trey it's great talking with you be safe out there and uh i look forward to like sitting down in a room with you uh one day mask free and sipping some whiskey can't wait to do it fred thanks a lot and thanks for uh thanks for the great uh rating so appreciate it very much Take Cheers, care, sir. Bye-bye. Cheers. Bye. All right. Before we get into who is in first and uh, what I think is the greatest bourbon of the century so far, let's take a listen to a word from our sponsors, including Manscaped, which I know Pamela's got some words about them. I do indeed, Fred. So listen up, guys, because today we have a new Manscaped product alert. Manscaped has just released the Weed Whacker Nose and Ear Hair Trimmer. Mm -hmm. Take a look in the mirror. I guarantee you'll see hair sticking out of those holes. So it's time to keep your ear and nose hair looking as nice as your clean-shaven pubes. Manscaped, forever changing the grooming game. It's their Weed Whacker. This nose and ear hair trimmer provides proprietary skin-safe technology, which helps prevent nicks, snags, and tugs in those delicate holes. Find out all about it. Just go to manscaped.com, get 20% off, and free shipping with the code Smooth Fred. All one word. Smooth Fred. 20% off with free shipping at manscaped.com. Use the code Smooth Fred. What are you waiting for? Go whack your weeds. Imagine this an experience centered around five Kentucky Bourbon Trail craft tour distilleries in northern Kentucky, the gateway to Kentucky bourbon. Add five amazing bourbon centric bars and five delicious bourbon focused restaurants, cultivating the freshest takes and culinary delights and you are on the beeline. Start your trip today at findyoursippingpoint.com. 
Michter's Distillery, our passion is making the finest bourbon, rye, and American whiskey possible. When you only produce very small batch and single barrel whiskey as we do, each and every barrel has to be perfect. No detail is too small for our production team. From careful attention to the 18-month or more air-dried wood used in the construction of our barrels, to entering our distillate into the barrel at the costlier or lower barrel entry proof of 103 so that it's smoother, to heat cycling our barrel houses, to our signature filtration protocol, we spare no expense in pursuing our goal of making the greatest American whiskey. And no Michter's gets bottled until our master distiller, Dan McKee, and our master of maturation, Andrea Wilson, say it's just right. Michter's Fort Nelson Distillery in downtown Louisville, Kentucky, is open for tours and tastings. Book your visit on our website and stop by the bar at Fort Nelson for a world-class cocktail. For more information, follow us on social media at Michter's Whiskey, go to michters.com, or visit your favorite bartender. Michter's Distillery. It's all about the whiskey. 291 Colorado Whiskey aims to create a one-of-a-kind, bold, and beautiful Colorado whiskey. Rugged, refined, rebellious. Distillery 291 is an award-winning small-batch whiskey distillery located in Colorado Springs, Colorado, nestled in the shadow of Pikes Peak. Owner and founding distiller Michael Myers grew up on family farms in Georgia and Tennessee, across a countryside defined by rolling hills, horses, and whiskey. He set out to create a flagship whiskey that evoked the Wild West. A cowboy walking into a bar saying, give me a whiskey, and the bartender slamming down a bottle, a bottle of 291 Colorado whiskey. Find a bottle near you at 291coloradowhiskey.com Ride it like you stole it, drink it like you own it, live fast, drink responsibly. Okay, so coming in at number one, the best, the one, the only, the Four Roses limited edition small batch, the greatest bourbon made in the 21st century. Look, I know the 21st century is just 20 years in. I know that. And I know that there's going to be a lot of people who will dispute lists, and that's already happened a little bit on social media, but most people respect it, and they're like, you know what, you know, your top five is in my top 20. So if you take a look at my top 20 or my top 30, you really could make an argument for a lot of these to be number one. But for me, from a flavor perspective, and from how well it holds up over time in the bottle, the 2013 limited edition small batch or the 125th anniversary was just so gorgeous it was just so gorgeous and so perfect and that's why it's here on the list please enjoy this interview with the great brent elliott from four roses how are you sir doing great fred how are you doing um you know i'm living the dream i get to um I know, I know, distillers. You all get to taste a lot of whiskey, and you get a lot of you get to do a lot of fun things. But uh, I, I think, I think I really do have the dream job because I get to taste everybody's whiskeys. And it was the 125th anniversary Four Roses Limited Edition that I believe is the best thing that's been made in this entire century so far. So I don't know. Well, I'm glad to hear you say that. I'm a little partial to that one too, so I wasn't too surprised when you picked that one. <laughs> now, tell this was so this was this was put out before you were a master distiller, 
but you were still yes. a big part. You are you are a big part of the team. So te- take us through uh, through that limited edition small batch and why it was so special. Uh, well, that one was kind of actually linked also to the 2012. If you taste that one, there's some similarities. Mm-hmm. And every year we try to do something different. You know, that's part of our uniqueness is the 10 recipes. So our intent every year is to create something totally different from years past. That was a bit of an exception because 2012 went over so well. People loved it so much. And we still had some of the barrels from the batches that were used in the 2012. Um, So that was kind of the approach was to make it different, but still try to take some of the the better notes, the better qualities out of the 2012 and incorporate those into the 2013. So it was kind of built on that. And in particular, there's one batch that I believe we used it in the 2010 and then the 2012 and then the 130th. It was an extra age, like 17-year-old OBSV, I think in the 2012, I think it was 18 in the 125th. And so it was kind of built around that batch. That batch has very unique flavors of uh, like berries, raspberry, just a very unique fruitiness that is that really defined any mingling or any batch that it was blended with and that was kind of how that one was built up was around those that flavor profile and again trying to recapture some of that magic from the 2012 and i think it succeeds and then some because i get asked all the time what my favorite of all of our releases is and it's hard to answer i end up you know naming three four or five (laughs) and it's interesting to note that those are the ones that have shown up on your list and the 13 is always up there towards the top. I really, really enjoy that one. Yeah, it was so special. You know, and of course, uh, you know, it's when you had, you know, Jim Rutledge was was the master distiller then. Uh, take us through take us through what it was like working with, with Jim, especially when you guys were having all these juggernaut releases. Well, by the way, there's never been a bad limited edition small batch come out of your uh, place. I mean, one that would be considered, you know, bad in comparison to others. It's still a 90, 91 point whiskey, which would be, you know, a lot of other distilleries be their best thing that they've had in years. So, but take us back to what it was like working with with, with Jim on uh, on this batch and some of the other uh, limited edition products. Okay, well, I can tell you, like when I first started, you know, I came into the industry and I was familiar with bourbon, so I knew who Jim was, and you know, it's a little intimidating to be you know, working side by side with an icon and someone who's that passionate and that intense, but you've met Jim. I mean, immediately, you know, I realized that he was approachable. He was friendly. He was so helpful. So from the beginning, we had a great relationship, whether it was working on batches of limited editions, other batches, uh, distillery, you know, anything that I needed help with or any of the younger people at the distillery, he was a mentor. You know, we had guys like him, Al Young, John Ray, that um, really helped develop the team. And so it was always fun to work with Jim, and in particular on the limited editions, uh, because as you know, Jim has a wonderful palate, he knows what he likes. And so that was great to have a mentor like that and someone that I could work with on, you know, learning how to develop the different flavors that you can achieve by bringing different batches together and seeing just how much magic, you know, that mingling process can bring to the final product. So with every one of these, every year, it was, it was a fantastic experience. And it's still my favorite 
thing to do each year. So that was a real opportunity to get to work with Jim and to learn from him and really to do, I think, what he also enjoyed a lot too. I mean, there's, you know, there are a lot of sides to the title of Master Distiller, but the the blending side is, I guess you get immediate results. You know, you you make whiskey and you sit on it for five, six, 10, 15 years. Mm-hmm. But when you're actually going out and you get to survey these old barrels, we always had a blast with it. You know, it's funny, like he, when you were named um, his successor, um, it, it was kind of like, it was like he had just uh, had his son get named to be the starting pitcher for the Yankees or something. Like he was so proud to see you be named um, as his replacement. And um, I mean, the things that he says about you, he holds you incredibly, you know, high regard. So I, I just, I think that's just, um, you know, the, that's one of the beautiful things of distilling is, is the, the chemistry, you know, between those, you know, who work together in the industry. And uh, I just, I'm just glad to, you know, hear you remember those moments fondly with Jim like that. I can't say enough of how much I owe to him personally for what he's taught me, um, you know, how much he did for the brand. And you can't measure that. Mm-hmm. I, a man that passionate, that dedicated, that knowledgeable, you know, what he did for me and the brand, it's just remarkable. And of course, you know, you mentioned Al Young, um, at the, the Al Young release also made the list. It came in at number, at number six, but we, uh, I wish I was, Al was here where I could talk to him, but, uh, he, he's, he passed away, you know, in the last year and, Gosh, I miss him. He's he. I miss Al. Yeah, I miss Al. I talk to people every day, even outside of Four Roses, that that miss Al. I think you know everybody that he met. Um, you know he touched he touched them. Whether it was just you know as a person, as a brand ambassador, um, and for the people that didn't meet him, you know, I feel bad for them. They didn't get the opportunity. But uh, yeah, I can't say enough good things about Al, and we we miss him terribly. You know, again, his contribution also can't be measured. You know, he was one of the original guys that helped, you know, bring the brand back, helped mentor us, the younger generation of Four Roses. And, you know, I think it's interesting because a lot of people don't realize because he became brand ambassador in 2008. So I'd always joke with him, you know, that's when he quit his real job. And that's when he got to do, you know, (laughs) what I think he was actually born to do. You know, he was on the technical side of things forever. You know, he was, uh, distillery manager he'd worked with seagrams at different plants and but his background was actually theater so you wonder how a a non-technical person got involved in such a technical business but or technical role but i mean he did that one remarkably well but i think when he transitioned from that side to being the brand ambassador i think that was the best thing that could have happened to him and the brand because that was the role that he was born to play i mean you know him and the stories yeah. he could tell, the the passion. I mean, he was just such a such a warm and generous person that that you know, just happy that you know the last you know twelve years of his life. I think that was really the pinnacle of his career, just getting to do what what he probably loved the most. And speaking of Al's fiftieth, I know he loved that, and that was interesting too because you know when he was actually in the production side or on the production side of of Four Roses. He was involved in the tasting panel and he had a honed palate. He knew what he liked. Um, but 
so we kind of dusted them off and pulled them out of the retirement in 2017 when we developed this because it was to commemorate his 50th anniversary. And of course we wanted his participation, his buy-in, you know, it was for him. So we weren't going to release anything if he wasn't, wasn't totally on board with it, if he weren't a part of it. And uh, so I know he enjoyed that. He loved it. He loved the final product. And so it's, I, that's always going to be you know, one of my, my favorites that along with the 2015, because that was the last year that, mm-hmm. uh, you know, that was like Jim's final, final limited edition. So, you know, apart from the flavors and the, the character of just the whiskey alone, there are stories behind each one of them that, you know, connect them to me in different ways. So those two are always going to be very special to me. You know, it's interesting, too, because Al and Jim had very different palettes and very different things that they liked. And, you know, for so many people, including myself, the Al Young release was such a uh, it was such a different, uh, more caramel bomb kind of flavor profile than what we're accustomed to with a very spice centric Four Roses. And it was to me, it it was a it, it showed the beauty of of mingling or blending and it showed the talent that it takes to you know take so many barrels and know exactly what you want out of them and kind of put them together for a a unique flavor profile and i think that al young edition was one of the greatest examples of why the people putting together the liquid matters so much yeah and i attribute that to al because when we first started that um, I went to him and I said, what do you want out of this? You know, give us an idea of where to start. And he had two two sort of guidelines or stipulations. He wanted to make it very unique. I actually had three. He wanted it to be from his tenure as distillery manager, which was easy because all of the older whiskey at the time had been produced when he was the manager. He wanted it to be unique and he wanted to incorporate an older batch. You know, the... The unique part was easy. I immediately started thinking, let's try some Q, E strains or some Fs. The older part, that kind of, that was sort of the challenge. And it's always the challenge. And so he kind of pushed it. You know, I, there was a, a good batch, a, a great batch that had been looked at for limited editions for a few years, like when it was 20, 21, 22 years old. And it was always kind of difficult to work with. because It had a lot of good characteristics, but it also had a lot of oak, you know, 23 years old. But that was the batch that immediately came to mind to try to bring in to meet those requirements. And that was kind of the foundation that everything was built on. And it was more of a challenge than some in years past. Um, one, because it was going to bear Al's name and that was, you know, we really wanted to commemorate him, you know, take it up a level from from years past and and because of the the extra age and to make it unique. So that was a learning experience. And I think it was a good exercise mm-hmm. in just taking the blending, the mingling, the art of that to maybe the next level or a different direction. But, you know, I'm super happy with how that turned out. And I know Al was too. Yeah. And, you know, again, it was just so different. But if you compare, if you compare the Al Young uh, to the 125th anniversary, I mean, you would, you would, it'd be very difficult to say that they're from the same distillery. That's how uniquely different they were. Yeah. You know? Those two are very different. But they're both in the top ten. But the one that comes in at number one is the is the 125th anniversary. Um, I'm curious when you were when you all were batching that, how many different iterations did you have before you kind of come came to the final one? 
Uh, I would have to go back and check, but I would guess typically it's anywhere between 30 to 50 different test blends. And I'm sure that one was about the same. There are a few years that I can recall that it took very few or a few years where it took a lot. And mm -hmm. that one was somewhere in the middle. So it was probably somewhere between maybe 30 to 40. Interesting. So, and you guys have, you guys have, uh, you know, single uh, story warehouses. Uh, what, what, what impact do you think that a single story warehouse has over say like a multi-story one um that's got variations on all the floors do you get a little bit more consistency out of the single story yeah absolutely especially for the ages that go into our normal products our standard products so between you know five and ten years we see very little variation from the bottom to the top but it, it's interesting because we go out to 11 12 23 years you do start seeing differences. Those mm -hmm. tiny differences, as you extrapolate that that time, you start to see a, a big difference in proof and character between, say, a sixth tier and a first tier. So that's another consideration. You know, at the younger ages, that's a, a dimension that we don't really have to to really focus on or or work around because it's consistent. But you start getting out to these limited editions. Not only is it you know, three, four different recipes that go into it. But we also look at the tiers because the first through third tier of a 17-year-old OBSK might be a lot different from a four through six. So we have to be conscious of that. Mm. And so the test blending does take on a different or an extra dimension, and that is elevation in the warehouse. Mm. And that's even, you know, but they're very consistent. And it may, because we use the 10 recipes, um, it's, it makes it so much easier at again between five and ten years because we don't have to worry about we can just say okay that batch can be used in here and we know that it's going to be consistent enough from the top to the bottom that it's not going to change but yeah again once you start getting out in age you have to consider that and now that you're you've been um you've got a you've got a good few years under your belt now as the as the master distiller and and this year, I think, is your best release um, that you've had. I thought last year's was great, but this year's limited edition small batch, Brent, it's really special. It is really exceptional. I appreciate you saying. Yeah, I I always wait a little while because when a batch first comes out after, you know, it's the initial bottling, it takes me a while to really let it sink in and evaluate in the context of all the other batches, you know, from years past. But I'm leaning towards that. I really, really like the 2019. I I see some similarities between like the 2015 and and a few others a little bit, but in particular the 15. But to me, it has um, a lot of similar characteristics, but the volume's turned up a little bit on it, a little mm. bit more layered, a little more complexity, and that's saying a lot because the 15 is that's always up there. It's one of my favorites. So that's kind of a benchmark that I'm comparing that to. But I inevitably see the parallels there. I'm not going to go so far as to say it's you know, top two or three yet, but the more I warm up to it, you know, I have, I really like that one. I'm really excited to, uh, to get to share this one. You know, we've just started releasing that. So, you know, and, and I, uh, if we were to like, so this list goes to the top 30, it's basically one every day for the month of September, Kentucky bourbon heritage month. And if we, if I was to expand it out to uh 100, 
I mean, every limited edition small batch would be on here. I mean, I it, it is it is year in year out a contender for whiskey of the year, whether it's my whiskey of the year or whiskey advocates whiskey of the year or any magazine or competition. I mean, it's just uh, consistently one of the most reliable. It's consistently it's the most reliable limited edition that is in the is in American whiskey, in my opinion. And um, I don't know how you guys do it, to be honest with you, because you, there's there's really not there's really not been a bad year for for the limited edition small batch. Maybe for you all because you're so nitpicky about it, but for consumers, we've loved them all. Well, I appreciate you saying that. So if we're so you let's let's go ahead and take a look at what are what are your favorite components of of doing these? Is it the, is it the older stocks, or is it trying to find a way to get like a, a really good mid age uh, flavor to stand out with you know some of the oakier notes of say a twenty twenty three year old nineteen year old? Well, usually when I'm approaching this it starts out just evaluating between 15 and 20 batches that have been set aside you know, mm -hmm. aged 10 to 20 some odd years. So really the first step, so I can kind of manage that much information, that many different batches, I try to work on sort of a core to work around. And that could be one particular batch that is just very mellow and smooth, um, or maybe two batches brought together to create that base. And then from there, it's, almost like dressing it with different components, whether it's maybe, you know, an F yeast strain or a Q or an O or the extra aged batches to try to bring it all together and see how it works. And there, there are a lot of hits, a lot of misses, a lot of surprises. Sometimes you bring batches together and it takes the whole blending process into a new direction. So that's why it takes 20, 30, 40, sometimes 60 or 70 test blends to, to finalize that. But that's generally the approach I take mm -hmm. because it's just it's the habit I've gotten into the the way that I've found it's the easiest to I guess uh, wrap my head around all of those different batches and you know finding a place to start to end up with a final you know, unique mellow and just you know, great representation of the best that Four Roses can do each year. So I'm in the I'm in the uh, uh, the F yeast fan club. Do you um, do you foresee any any more F yeast coming into the um, to to the to the batching process anytime soon? More the better. Uh, very likely. Um, you know, intentionally this year, I didn't even play with any Fs, and that yeah. was I noticed. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, Fred. <laughs> but you know al's 50th you know i think that was defined uh, in probably that in the 130th i think the flavor profile on both those was really influenced by the f and then we released small batch select which actually was came from the the learning from al's 50th and the, the 130th just you know how well the f and the v work together and so that learning was applied to the small batch select and mm -hmm. so I felt like it was time to you know, offer something a little different, not lean on the F because it is such a defining flavor. You put some F in there. It doesn't take a lot. And that will take that flavor profile in a totally unique direction. So with this, I thought it would be nice to try to, um, I 
working on this, I think there were some cues, some um, test blends that utilize the cue, uh, but ultimately it kind of, the blend sort of dragged me back more towards the K's and the V's where it ended up, you know, o OBSK, o ESK, OBSV, OESV. And so I think with this one, it is more the 2020, it's more of a balance of more of our core flavors. It was just about layering those, creating an elegant flavor profile, a great finish. And the thing that I really think is remarkable about this one is that 19-year-old, uh, that's in there at 19%. And you can taste that, mm -hmm. but it, against the challenge of bringing the good characteristics you get from those older batches, but mingling out the, the more stringent or oaky characteristics. So you want it in there just enough to let people know that it's, you know, remind them of that, that rich um, aged character, because that at the right level, if you, if you walk that fine line perfectly, it can make a wonderful whiskey. You, you go beyond that and it starts to become too flat. You start to lose some of those more delicate, vibrant flavors. And I really think we've achieved that with this one. Are you laying uh, about equal parts amount of uh, the different yeasts down in, in barrels right now? Obviously, the V yeast, because it's your your staple, gets the majority of the still time. But are the other yeast, yeast strains getting about the same amount of still time? Uh, the K gets, the V is the most, then the K, then O, F, and Q. Hmm. And all that's just based on the, you know, first it's a sales forecast, and then kind of back into what we need to produce each year based on formula and you know evaporation rates and all that. So it really, if you look at all of our products and how much of each one of those recipes goes into each one of those, that's pretty much the proportion or the, the ratio that we use for production planning each year. Well, Brent, thank you so much for taking the time, uh, you know, listening to you talk about um, the process. I have to tell you that every uh, Seagram's distilling guide and blending guide that I ever read from the you know, fifties to the seventies, you're, you're, you're in, you're in like hugely in the Seagram's DNA there at four roses <laughs> with, with your technique. So that's pretty awesome, man. It's pretty awesome. Well, I want to thank you, Fred. This is an honor. We're all super excited about this and, uh, it was great talking to you. Good to see always, you. always a pleasure, my friend. And I look forward to sharing a dram with you, uh, in the future in person. So be safe. Hopefully very soon. I hope so. Cheers, my Cheers, friend. Fred. So that's going to do it for this week on the Fred Minnick Show. I know the episode was longer than normal, but listen, we're talking about the greatest bourbons of the century. You got to give me some time, man. You got to let me have a little bit of extra time on that because it's a long subject and it's a lot of great whiskeys in there to talk about. But hey, I appreciate you tuning in. Make sure you go to manscaped.com and go check out their products. Put in Smooth Fred to save 20% at checkout. But that's going to do it for us this week. Make sure you're following us on all the social medias. Just look for my name, Fred Minnick. And I've got a lot of stuff going on YouTube, so make sure you're going over there to checking out those live streams every Wednesday. I've got some cool uh, musician interviews coming up there on the live streams. You're going to want to check that out. And thanks to all those who helped put this podcast together. Justin Zweig, uh, Gary Krantz, Pam LaFer, Clay Bush, Max Felder. You guys are the best. Be safe out there, everybody. Go sign up for my newsletter at fredminnick.com. Until next time, see you later. You've been listening to The Fred Minnick Show, brought to you by Manscaped. Enter Smooth Fred to save 20% at checkout. 
Also, by the Beeline, Michter's, and 291 Colorado Whiskey. For all things Fred, visit fredminnick.com.